Hi, I'm Rob Jepson, and my mission is to help sales leaders everywhere create record-setting growth in the companies they lead. I'm here to share the secrets of the world's most successful sales leaders. I don't care how big the company or how big the team, we showcase sales leaders who are taking what the market gives and then some. We feature leaders of teams that are beating their markets, winning at crazy rates, and creating life-changing years for the people they lead. The Sales Leadership Podcast is brought to you by Scipio. The number one challenge every salesperson faces right now is how to have more conversations with more potential customers and land more appointments. And that's why you need to check out Scipio today. I've had too many sales leaders share with me how Scipio has transformed their ability to make contact with customers faster and easier than ever before. If you don't have texting as part of your modern sales process, you need to. Scipio has the best automated texting platform I've ever seen. Scipio's texting platform will help you build personalized relationships at scale in an authentic way your customers will appreciate. Salespeople using Scipio, they say big things happen. They're seeing a 5x improvement in landing appointments and a 40% lift in show rates. And that leads to more conversations, which we all know leads to more sales. And while the results speak for themselves, don't take my word for it. Head over to Scipio.com and use the code ROB, that's R-O-B, for a 30-day trial on the plan of your choice, courtesy of the Sales Leadership Podcast. Again, that's Scipio.com and use the code ROB to see just how good a modern messaging platform can be. Now, get ready for some serious insights from this week's sales leader who's making it happen. And remember, don't worry, we got you. Hello and welcome to the Sales Leadership Podcast, where high-growth sales leaders share high-growth practices and tactics. Today, we're joined by Warren Zena, founder and CEO of the CRO Collective. Now, Warren's a strategic sales and marketing exec with over 20 years of success. The CRO Collective is a B2B consultancy that's focused solely on the role of chief revenue officer. Warren helps organizations solve RevOps challenges that come from misalignment in the B2B sector. The CRO Collective works with CEOs and CROs to re-engineer revenue strategies and revenue ops as businesses grow, adapt, and change. Now, for all of us listening today, Warren's insights are super important because the more senior the sales leadership position, the higher the stakes, and if I'm honest, the lonelier the position is. Warren's success in many organizations has led to him having opportunities to be a speaker at industry events, featured on many podcasts. He's a contributing author for publications like AdAge and Forbes. Warren's been a difference maker to sales leaders and organizations all around the world. I've got a number of people that I work with that have spoken very highly of Warren. I've enjoyed getting to know him as part of this process. I'm pumped to have him join me on the show today. Warren, welcome to our show and thanks for joining us. Rob, thank you for having me. This is great. I'm looking forward to this conversation a great deal. I've been excited to have this too. I've had enough people that I have a ton of respect for say uh, my show's no good if I don't have you on it, that that I'm excited hmm. to remedy that today, man. Well, um, I hope I can live up to that uh, <laughs> that recommendation. We'll see how it goes. <laughs> Thank you. Um, why don't you start by introducing your firm to our listeners and, and what you do for the people that you work with? Sure, sure. So um, about t- two, two years ago, just pre-COVID, which is an interesting story in itself. Um, I, I launched uh, the CRO Collective, which is a consultancy and a training platform 
and a, a development program that helps B2B companies develop more comprehensive strategic sales organizations and revenue organizations. Okay. And the sort of, uh, I guess, the, the kernel that launched it was the awareness that I'm sure you know this, right? Any person listening to this knows that uh, revenue operations are siloed, right? They have sales and marketing and in some cases, customer success organizations that operate in separate groups almost. Many times they're at war with each other. They don't uh, work together collaboratively. CEOs struggle with this. I mean, I don't know how many webinars and, you know, different articles and white papers come out about the you know, discord between sales and marketing. It's, it's this ongoing right, conversation. Yeah. And, and the reality is that I, I don't want to say that I have some sort of magical solution, but what seems to not be mentioned and what occurred to me a long time ago is that you know, leadership never seems to be for, the forefront of how to solve it. It always seems to be very symptomatically approached, right? Oh, it must be a problem with sales. It must be a problem with marketing. And they go at it very symptomatically. And one thing that occurred to me in my career over the course of the last 25 years was seeing that these chief revenue officers, this this role that's only 10 years old, really, uh, really is such a sales focused role. And that's such a misstep. It's almost a, it's, a, it's, it's more than a misstep. It's, a, it's actually costing companies, I'd say, in the billions of dollars across, you know, all industries, where they're uh, putting too much focus on sales individually, and not how a chief revenue officer really should oversee the entire revenue function of a company, which includes marketing and customer success as well. So another thing that occurred to me was that chief revenue officers really don't have a place to go. Right? It's a really difficult job, it's a high pressure job. Uh, there's no place for chief revenue officers to get training, collaboration, right? just to commiserate, right? to, to work with each other. There's plenty of CEO programs and CFO programs. There's lots of CMO programs that everybody knows. But CROs are sort of this lonely, you know, soldier out there. And that's another thing that was missing. And then the last part was um, there's no real understanding uh, of how to hire a chief revenue officer. So a lot of CEOs don't really know what a CRO really does. And that's the big mistake. That's the kernel of the problem is that CRO, CEOs are typically looking for somebody to run sales. And when they're really clear about what a CRO really does, it actually changes the nature of the person they're looking for, the way they onboard them, the way they inculcate them into the organization. And it has a big profound impact on the way revenue is, is viewed across the company. So I'm looking to make a change in that area. And um, it's, been, it's been very exciting. The response in the marketplace has been overwhelming in terms of like, where have you been? You know, so it's been, it's been pretty, pretty cool. I want to, I can't wait to dive into that um, as we get into it. I, I know that you're right. The CRO title has kind of emerged in the last few years. It's not like it's a relatively newer deal. And and I think there is a lot of misconceptions on what that really is. So I'm excited to dive into that with you and and how you prepare Uh for that and some other things. But before we do, I'd love to just get a little more of your story. I mean, that's awesome how you started that. You've you've been in this game for a long time, man. And uh, I always like for my listeners to get a little more of the of the personal story, just at a high level. Like, how'd you get into sales, and how did that get you to a spot where you were the guy to become the CRO guy? <laughs> yeah. So, um, probably a lot of the people listening to this recognize that they were sort of born salespeople. I mean, a lot of people fall into it, right? Because it's a great way to make a living. And anyone, anybody will tell you that if you don't know what to do, try and sell something. Because if you can learn how to sell, you kind of build a career for yourself. And I think that's yep. true. But there's a lot of people, and I would suspect to, there's probably two kind of people that listen to sales podcasts. One are hardcore salespeople who love selling and they love listening to this stuff. It's like no, dip, no, no different than listening to a sports channel, right? 
And then there are people who, who are sort of trying to figure it out and they're listening for tips and techniques and how to learn to do it better, right? And um, I was the guy who just loved selling. I, I think it was just something that came naturally to me. Um, I have a theater background. I'm a, bit gre- I'm a bit gregarious and all that stuff. And uh, in the 90s, I won't, I won't bore you with the length of the story. It's actually a really great one, but it's, we don't have enough time. Someone who I'm very close to still to this day, 30 or some odd years later, who is an amazing salesperson, basically tapped me on the shoulder after I did a couple things. I sold advertising when I was in college. I was a telemarketer when I was in college. And I was always really good at it. He was like, you could sell anything. So long and short of it, he hired me as, his, as kind of like his deputy to help him sell media. And um, he was right. You know, I took to it very well. Um, I awesome. did very well. And then I got hired there and I got, I got into the sales game and I was mostly selling. This is where it gets more pertinent to this. I was selling marketing services almost exclusively. So I've been selling marketing services for 20 some odd years now. So what I mean by that is I was either working for agencies or I was working for technologies or I was working for platforms that solved marketing solutions for companies. So uh, when you're selling something, and anyone on this podcast knows this, when you sell something like a service, you become the product after a while. Because if you're good at selling it, you sort of have to understand how it works. And you become proficient at not only selling it, but also explaining it. And in some cases, maybe even consulting on it. So I also became really proficient at marketing. Mm. So I opened up my own agency. You know, if you could sell and you can run a business, then you're a pretty good entrepreneur, right? So I was able to make that work. Uh, I got kind of lucky uh, in the early 2000s. I got hired at Publicis Group, which is a very large, uh, you know, international holding company to be an executive there. And I built a nice business. And I was more of a consultative role. I opened up my own agency. And then after that, I got hired at another big holding company. And I ran one of their you know, executive uh, groups there. And this is where it got interesting because now I was a buyer because I had money. So here I am now. I'm also now being vetted by all these B2B companies coming and trying to sell their wares to me because I have the budget to spend on them. And this became yep. an interesting perspective for me. Now, all of a sudden, imagine anybody listening to this podcast, if you've been selling for 10, 15 years, and all of a sudden now you're the buyer. You're going to look at these conversations a lot differently than someone who never sold before because you understand how these people are selling. And you're looking at the selling mechanics and all this stuff. And I learned a lot. So putting all these three pieces together, it occurred to me how this whole sales marketing, customer success functions, how this this silo aspect of these companies was so prevalent and so apparent to me. I saw how salespeople were on one track and how marketing was on another track. And I started speaking to CEOs about this problem. And uh, what occurred to me, and this is going back three or four years ago, where's the CRO in all this? What's the CRO doing? How's the CRO coordinating this, all this? It really is an orchestration job, right? When you're a CRO, your really job is to kind of wrangle together these disparate functions within a larger organization and make them work together. And I didn't see that being done very well. Hmm. So this is when the kernel of the idea came about. And I started realizing cool. that CROs really need some, some support. So that's a long answer, but uh, I hope it, uh, hope it helps. It's a great one. It's good. Because I think what we're going to talk about today will be, will be one that most of our listeners are going to be excited about. I mean, people care about their, their career. They, they care about you know, where they're going, how they're going to get there. And people quite often are saying, what's next? I have X number of, of cycles in my professional career. And once I choose this sales and revenue path, that this CRO thing is, is a new thing that started to show up. And so I think talking about that's going to be interesting, but I actually want to start by talking about it in a way that might surprise some of our listeners. We're in a world where the more senior you get, especially on the revenue side, 
the more mm. volatile those positions seem to be. The average number of months continues to fall, and there's a number of reasons for that. But I'd love to start with that, with your perspective. Why? Do, first, do you see volatility in those positions, and and then why do you do you think that's the case? Yeah, I, I most definitely do. Uh, I think there's some inherent things that are somewhat on the face out obvious, right? As you move higher up in a company and you take on more responsibility, more responsibility just naturally results in more pressure. I think anyone probably looks at that anyway. They see any advancement as taking on more bodies, right? More accountabilities, more variables, right? That That's obvious. But I think what I think you're talking about too is is it, there's a bit of a unique aspect of how how volatile it's become. And I believe that there's a lot of pressure in the B2B sales space today because of the financial components and the economics of businesses today. So if you look at the way what's going on right now in the marketplace, it's unbelievable. Companies are being evaluated at ridiculous amounts of money really right? quickly. Many times, yeah. many times with no sales or, or, or I'm sorry, no profitability, right? And um, it's out of whack, right? I mean, you see a company that's evaluated at a billion dollars. It hasn't actually made any profits. Um, I just saw this amazing story about Rivian and Ford, right? Mm. I mean, they made this deal together. And the company's valued at billions of dollars. They haven't even produced a car yet, right? Wow. So, 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 so this sort of stuff, you know, it's anecdotal, but what it, 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 what it really is, is it's indicative of what's going on in the marketplace. And that is that when a company is launching and they're taking on valuations, they're taking on you know seed rounds, the amount of pressure that's on sales organizations today is unlike anything. It's crunch time. It used to be like what's accepted to do in two years now has to be done in six months. And if it's not done in six months, it's like a failure. And human beings are being asked to make things happen in marketplaces where some of these expectations are frankly not possible, but they take the jobs anyway, right? And there's a sort of collectivism that goes on in some of these companies with these uh, sense of these, these projections that are being pushed down from the top, usually driven by a relationship between the CEO and the VC company who funded them right? Trying to drive as much revenue growth as possible. And the way we evaluate revenue growth these days is much different than we used to. It's not profitability. It's just get the pipeline filled or get more customers on board or get more customers to sign up for something. Now, if I'm a salesperson or a sales leader in that environment, that's volatile in and of itself. And sure. you know, anyone on this uh, listening to this podcast that's thinking about moving into not just a regionalized managerial role, which you know maybe you're running a bunch of group, a bunch of guys in, in in one segment of the country, but if you're looking to oversee sales for an entire organization, you're now piped into a much bigger challenge, which is you know you're now responsible for a lot of constituencies associated with that revenue, right? And um, I think it's become more uh, evident. Like I think that with the internet and with technology and with metrics tools and with the technologies and the um, sales technology tools we use, you're looking at dashboards every single minute of the day. And you have all this evidence in front of you that shows how the movement made. And that's a lot of pressure to be staring at all the time. It's no different than people who play the market, right? Remember, you play the market today, people look at the market like every minute. You know, if it goes up by a dollar, it's on the news because you know, the news cycle is looking for stories and that creates a psychological, you know, uh, re reaction that can reverberate throughout a co corporation and a culture. And I really do think that a lot of this stuff is putting a lot of pressure on people that makes these senior level roles very difficult to survive in for long periods of time. Um, and so I think that's a big part of it right now. So the reason I wanted to start with that, Warren, is I think it sets it up for us to have a really interesting conversation on how do you avoid some of that job volatility because you're able to, to 
basically put organization around some of this chaos that you just described. You describing it just took me back in time to when I've been that guy. I remember that feeling, man. And it is a very lonely spot. It is. It's, it's, it's really lonely. It's tough. It's tough. (laughs) And And a chief revenue officer is even more difficult. I know I'm not trying to change the topic, but you know, think about someone who now moves into the C-suite and has that job. Now you're isolated almost, but yeah, you're correct. And um, I think the ways that I would talk to uh, a rising star, let's say, you know, the first step I think that someone needs to do is ask some really tough questions because l- let's face it, Rob, I mean, you and I both know some of the aspirations and the ambitions that salespeople have are somewhat on autopilot. There's, there's an expectation in some cases that salespeople seem to think like, well, I'm, I'm supposed to get a managerial job. That's my next track. That's what I'm supposed to do. You know, so career plans are almost sort of taken out of like a Cracker Jack box. And we look at them, we say, all right, well, I got to, I got to, I got to manage people now. You know, the first question is I slow down and ask them, is that what you really want to do? Because the reality is you don't have to, like, if you're really, really, really good salesperson and you contribute well to the bottom line and you're really good individual contributor, you may be just fine to keep doing that and maintain your independence and just continuing to kill it every, every quarter and making your number. Right. Um, you know, and I think that I've seen too many sales managers, they make the leap into management thinking that's what they're supposed to do. And then they're miserable, right? They don't make as much money. You know, they have to manage a bunch of people, you know, salespeople are really difficult people to manage. You know, they're, they're a unique bunch. Everybody on this, you know, listening to this knows that. And so I've seen a lot of people whom reluctantly made the decision to do it because they thought that they were supposed to do, not what they really wanted to do. So I think the first thing to think about is, you know, it's a different dynamic. I, I look at it this way. The best way I can I can describe it is this, and this is an obvious one, but it makes sense. You know, the, and you've heard this analogy before, but it's so true. The best, best, best basketball players made really, really lousy coaches, right? Without a doubt. And, and the best coaches, the best coaches weren't really great players, right? So if you look at some of these amazing coaches that went down in history, they were not really great players, but they were really good at another skill, which was managing people and motivating people and creating cultures. And if you don't have that skill set, if it doesn't come natural to you, it's really difficult to create. And what ends up happening is too many salespeople, they become managers. And in order to survive, they continue to sell. And what ends up happening is they sell their way out of the job. And it's really not a good situation to be in. So I, I don't, I don't so recommend true, it. Warren, and so, so true, Warren. So true. You know, and so what ends up happening is is, is the, the manager of the company, let's call it the, the head of the company says, you know, we hired John to manage sales and he's really not that great at it, but he still kills it. He still carries a book of business. So let's just let him keep on making this money and we'll sort of be able to make up and compensate for his lack of managerial skills to the amount of money that he makes us. So that's a that's a recipe for disaster. That's a, you're, you're, you're not going to stay in that job very long. So I would ask yourself, when you when you look ahead at that, you play that out, really be, have a really difficult conversation with yourself and ask yourself that. If you really feel that managing people and being a great coach, you know, is something that you think you aspire to do and you're good at, then it's probably the right thing for you to do. Yeah, you know, I told one person, that's a really common, I'm so glad you brought this up. I, I have, I just am working with one of my, my sales leaders is doing exactly what you said. He's selling himself out of a job. The way you said it is so insightful, Warren. When they were missing their number, rather than go and help his people, he like, just get goes it done, and sells. He went yep. and sold the deals he needed to hit his number because he said, sold "My role out of the job, right? Yes, away. my role done. is to hit this number for my team. No, so it's I'll not. do it. Yeah, it's, it's it happens all the time. Here's another thing I'm going to say because this is a great topic. So, so the one is this. So, if you if you look at, uh, I had a lot of arguments with people about this one. 
If you're looking at a job, <laughs> if you're looking at a job, a new job, and the job description, they say, we need a player coach. Run. I, that's such a massive red flag. And yeah. here, here's, I want to put some caveats to this because I'm, I'm mindful of some realities. A company that has, you know, maybe their first seed round and is, you know, newly funded. That's a really like unique time frame in the growth of a company where there, people really do need to do a lot of different things. There's an understandable need for people to manage and do things at the same time because you have to. And I, I think everyone, any entrepreneur, myself included, knows that you can't ask people to really be very siloed in their disciplines early on because everyone has to get their hands dirty. The problem is this, Rob, is that companies don't know how to transition out of that. And what ends up happening is they, they say, oh, we have to keep our startup culture. You know, it's really healthy for our organization. It's better when everybody chips in and does things. But anyone knows that when the organization starts to get a little bit more complex, that you, you need people to start creating, you know, swim lanes. And that doesn't mean they don't collaborate. It just means they focus on the things they're supposed to. And so if I'm looking at a job description and it says, I want you to be a, a player coach, but the company's like got like 20 million or 25 million revenues, I, I'd, I'd be like, there's something wrong here. Why is that? And I bet the answer, I know the answer. The answer is usually because the culture of the organization feels they have this sort of, I don't know how this philosophy seems to become imbued in these companies, is that managers should sell. And that best, the best managers are the ones who can lead by example, so to speak, right? So if the manager carries a book of business, it's going to show the other salespeople that he's willing to do the same thing. And it does, it, it's just not true. It's actually really, a, it's, a, it's a very dysfunctional way of looking at things. The reality is that someone that you hire, I'm talking, talking to CEOs now, someone who you hire to run your sales organization should have already proved it. They shouldn't have to come into your organization and reprove it again. The reason you hired them is because they were a kick-ass salesperson, and now they're really great at managing sales. And if you can't make that distinction clearly enough that you can't make your organization function in a way that you have someone who's managing sales and, and that person is is it has an important enough function within that ecosystem to make an impact, then you probably need to reevaluate why it is you even use sales manager in the first place. That's the first thing I'd say. And if you're on the other side of it, you have to be really tough and ask those questions. And, and frankly, this is the bad news is that most of the time, the people who are looking for that probably want that so badly that they'll just probably see you as not a fit, but that's okay. Cause it's probably not a job that you would want anyway. So that's the first thing I would say is, is make sure that you're really clear about that managerial step and what it means and how the company views it. The best situations are one where you have companies that have a real respect for and understanding of what sales leadership is and how to support it and how to make sure that it gets the maximum impact without distracting the sales leader from carrying a book of business and having to go out and try and manage a quote at the same time, which is a real distraction. It's not, a, it's not the right way to run things. I have rarely seen the player coach work. It's very, very. I, I rare. agree. Yeah. You it's, know what ends up happening? They become players. Yep. Because the quota ends up trumping, and that's why when I'm working with organizations, I'm making that making that change because it's hard. You're right. It's very hard to get out of that once you're there. It is because it's a leap of faith. It. It's a leap of faith, it, right? A hundred percent. I don't. I don't. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm saying it's necessary, right? But, that's why role definitions one, but I'll be interested on this. I, one of the things I tell people is, listen, when you're in sales, your product is solving the customer's problem. When mm -hmm. you're a sales leader, your product is your people and developing them. 
And, yep. um, and you have to get your hands around your product now is the success of your people. And 100%. You, you can demonstrate technical competence without having a quota. You can do it in helping coach deals, helping 100%. Yeah, exactly. And what you should be doing, right? You should be, you yeah. should be, you should be quote unquote, like, you know, selling as a behavior. There's a difference yes. between selling as a behavior, but selling as a metric is, it's a really bad idea. So, so the best sales managers, you know, they pop in and they support and they don't take credit, by the way. They let their people shine and they let them have their wins and they let them have their deals and let them get their numbers. But they're in the background making sure that their salespeople are given the tools, the support, the coaching, the motivation that they need to succeed. And there's enough there for a job. That's a big job. That's a job that yeah. shouldn't have to be distracted by someone now. Well, close some deals too. We need you to get a number. Um, it's, it's, it's a sign of laziness in my opinion. It's a lazy organization that's not really thinking this through. So I'm glad you brought that up. So that, that's one of the first things as a sales leader. If you want to continue to grow, you got to get to a point where you're not having your success be defined by what you sell or That's maybe right. even this is like this is the one some people don't get. I'll be interested to get your take on this. It might not even be how much your team sells; it's how much your team improves. And mm, I like uh, that. I, I like that because when you get so focused on that number of sales, it I've seen it just like you, Warren. It, when that's the end all be all, then all of a sudden it sucks you in and you can start doing deals. And it's one of the seven, I have these seven deadly sins of sales leaders where mm-hmm. I become a crutch, not a coach. I'll, I'll be the Superman on my chest and I'll come in and I'll close that deal for you. And you actually are not an enabler at that point. You're actually someone that just becomes uh, a crutch. So I, I, I agree. I do. And, and, I, and I think it, you could, you just the way you're describing this, you can already hear how in order for that to work, like the way that you and I are, I think, envision it, you need to have a lot of things in place. You need to have the right boss. You have the right company. You need yeah. to have the right culture. You have the right people. And all those things coming together is not easy because the things we talked about maybe 10 minutes ago, which is all that pressure that's on companies, they, they kind of feel justified in not being able to do this. They're like, well, look, I can't afford this. I need everybody to sell. If I don't yeah. hit my number, we're not going to get our valuation and I'm going to get fired. So screw that. I need my I need my manager to sell. I don't care. Everyone has to have a book of business attached to them. If you don't like it, get out of here. You know. And to me, I think that there's something broken right, about the way these companies are being set up today because what's happening is they're actually being set up right, to create very divisive and very volatile cultures. And it's almost looked at like, well, that's the way it is. It's high pressure, man. Let's do yeah. it. You don't like it? Get out of the pool, you know. And I, I, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't agree with that. I don't, I don't, I don't think that that culture actually. I think it ends up not working. It doesn't work. I'm so glad to hear you say that. That one of the first things in being successful as a sales leader or a chief revenue officer, or the senior most person in whatever the the revenue culture is, is first let's get good at picking the right co- companies. That's that's really insightful. You know, there's some places that you may have all the skills in the world and you're struggling to have a hard time succeeding because of what you talked about. Yeah. Go ahead. I apologize. No, no, you go ahead. No, keep going. I was just going to, I was going to say one more thing about this. And that is that I want to make sure that I'm not being a a, a Pollyanna. I understand that salespeople need to get jobs. They need to be employed. And if I'm under the normal pressure of any, you know, person who maybe has a wife and a family and a house and a mortgage and all the other things that come of it, I may have to make some concessions in the decisions that I make when I get a job because I don't have the 
like financial, you know, uh, latitude to be able to be that discerning. You know, if someone offers me a nice job with a nice salary, I sort of have to look at it all and make a pragmatic decision about, yeah, you know, they're going to make me sell and they're going to make me play at the same time. And then they're going to make me coach, but, you know, they're paying me good money and I really need this job. And, you know, uh, I'm very cognizant of these things. I, I don't want to sound like it's so easy to just be discerning and just kind of put your arms up and say no to everything. But what I would say is that despite those realities, you got to do it anyway. And the reason is because I've seen too many people say yes to too many jobs and they end up in that spin cycle where every two years they're in a different job because they just keep saying yes to the same deal over and over again. And there's a point where you do have to sort of stop the machine and be a bit more discerning because the success is going to come when you find the right situation where the organization sets you up to succeed and not just burn you out in two years. And it's the short-term thinking that ends up killing salespeople. Good salespeople can get chewed up by this. So to do whatever degree you can, and this is what I always suggest, try and find some way to generate income on your own on the side while you're working for people so that you have the ability and affordability to make these kind of discernments and pick the right roles. You, you have to do this for yourself. You can't be at the mercy of the, of the uh, market and the economy. You have to be really, really out in front of yourself. And I just see too many people not doing this and they end up in this cycle. So that's just some, something I'd like to make sure people understand. Well, I'm glad you've teed this up. There's at least two things I want to make sure we have time to hit based on what you've just said. You, you've brought up two things that I think our listeners are going to really gravitate to. This is going to be a really, we're, hopefully we're going to help a lot of people with this. Warren, I'm really, really excited to have you here for, for these next two areas that, um, that we go. Let me tell you what they are and I'll let you pick where we go first so we can make sure we have the time in the area that you think is most important. Sure. sure. Um, the two things that I've got written down here is I'm taking notes. Number one, I'm really interested in your take on, okay, now that I've picked the right company, what are like the key skills that I should be having like that make me a great leader, either on just the sales side or ultimately if I want to be a chief revenue officer? What are the mm. skills that I should be creating, I should be intentional about? So I'm not just opportunistic, but I could be intentionally saying I'm preparing myself for something. And then I want to also hit onto this, this um, spin cycle you just talked about. I know there's a lot of people that like feel like a year here, 18 months there, whatever, I should be moving on some kind of frequency. And I want to get your take on, is it possible to be too ambitious and the importance of track record and success history uh, hmm. along the, because I think both of those are really big topics right now. Yeah, fine. I'll talk about both. Let's talk about the second one first. Okay. So I had an interesting situation once. I went to an interview in Mountain View and it wasn't with Google. It was another big company in Mountain View. Okay. I was interviewing with the CEO of this company and it was a really interesting experience. And he told me something I couldn't believe. He said, you know, we don't like it when people come in to interview when we see that they've had jobs for four or five years. We only hire people who've had like two year stints at jobs. Interesting. And I said, really? I said, really? Tell me more about that. He goes, you know, today's marketplace, it's so fast paced. You can't learn anything new if you're in a job for four or five years, you know, you're, you're stale, you know? So we see companies that hire, we hire people who have had a lot of different jobs because they're going to have more of a collective experience of different things. And they're also going to have adaptability. And that adaptability is good for people to have in jobs that are as volatile as the ones that we're trying to hire for. So that was, I was fascinated by that. I couldn't believe I heard that, right? Because you think the opposite would be true. Like I want people to have stability and they show commitment. But one thing he didn't say, which is critical about this, 
in the model he proposed, he was suggesting it based on this being intentional, which means that whoever they're hiring kind of knew that, right? And sort of wanted to have different experiences. The one I'm talking about is more reactive where they didn't plan on it. It was more because they kept getting fired, right? Or they kept on getting, you know, I don't know, whatever, uh, quitting, right? Or, or not, not able to, you know, make money or something like that. So someone could look at that superficially and say, boy, you know, that's great. That's good to know that guys, no, 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 no. What they're going to look at, they're going to look at not how many jobs you have. They're going to look at why you left. And they're going to look at the track record you had. And if they see someone who bounces around a lot, they're going to think either, A, he wasn't a fit anywhere or he quit all the time, as opposed to someone who said, yeah, you know, I wanted to learn about this. So after this was over, I did that. It's going to show someone who has a different sort of context in the way that they're mapping out and collecting and building their career. So I would say, if you find yourself in that spin cycle, don't kid yourself. People see this stuff. They look at a resume and they can tell that you're a salesperson, you're a journeyman, you only last 18 months at every job. They're likely not going to assume that you plan this, right? They're going to assume that it's happening to you and there's something going on. So I think it's really important to know that trying to find a situation where you can ground yourself in and get through that first two years successfully, because everyone knows that first year is setup year. The second year is the success year. And the third year is a maintenance year, right? And what you sort of want to do is make sure you can get through those three years, because if someone sees that thing, go, okay, he made it through the toughest parts, right? He was onboarded. He was able to make make it work. He stayed on for another year and hit his number. And then the third year, you know, he was able to go and find himself an opportunity in the marketplace. I'd like to work with somebody like that. So that's something I think you should be thinking about. I like that. Um, the three-year segments, three-year blocks, I think is an But you know, that's how it is. You, yeah. you know, you know how it works, right? It, it's just, it, it's, it's just standard stuff. Um, you know, if someone's in a job, a sales job for four years, that means they probably found a home. They're probably in a good situation where they're making good money and they fit into the culture. They may be on track to be in management. They become more valuable in the marketplace. You kind of got to get through those first two, two and a half years, and then you're good. So I would think about that. So I want to make sure I'm managing time. So the second I thing can. you asked me, which is which is related to which is related to the competencies and things you should be looking at. This is a really good one. So. If I'm a salesperson right now and I'm thinking about becoming a leader, let's say I want to move into the leadership suite, there's two directions you can go, right? One is I'm going to stay in sales. I love sales and I want to run sales teams. It's my baby. I like that area. It's my area of expertise. And I answered the questions Warren proposed earlier. And I do think that I'm someone who'd make a great coach and I like the idea of managing people and I'm going to pursue that. Okay. So now what you got to be thinking about is there's a lot of things, right? One thing is about you know, when you're not selling anymore and you're not managing a pipeline, now you're managing, like you said, you're managing other people, right? So the first thing you need to be thinking about is what sort of salesperson am I right now? Am I a salesperson that other people come to? Am I making other people better, right? Am I somebody when I'm selling in my company that I'm finding a lot of people come to me and they're looking for my guidance or my mentorship or I find that I naturally gravitate towards seeing how other people are doing things and I take an interest in them. Because if you're not naturally like that, you sort of have to start thinking about why. Like, why are you not already taking an interest in other people? Because it's that interest in other people that's going to make you the best possible sales manager, right? It's a natural interest because you can do it as a function, say, well, my job is to care about other people. But there's a difference between 
my job is to care about other people and I just really care about other people, right? And you can tell like the difference. That. So I, I think that you really have to kind of like find a natural, because it's sort of an art. It's not a science, you know, that part of it. Um, I think people can make it up. I think they can fake it. I think they can create, you know, cadences and coaching plans and they can sit people down once a week. But you and I both know there's some people who are just doing it all the time. Every time you talk to them, they give you some piece of wisdom or they're looking at you or they hear you on the phone. They walk up to you like, hey, Bob, this day I heard this call. You said, come here, I want to talk to you about it. So I think if you're like that, you're probably going to be successful because you're already someone who is naturally acclimated towards that thing. The other thing you need to do is you need to think about all the things that affect the salesperson. So you have to understand marketing. You have to understand the way customer success works. You have to understand the way sales fits into the entire organization, not just as a silo, but how does it relate to the other components of the revenue function? Really good sales managers understand that. They have great relationships with the people in marketing and great relationship with the people in customer success. And they understand how to bridge those gaps with them and collaborate with them because those insights and those other disciplines make your sales team perform better. So if you understand that stuff, you're going to have a much better outcome. You're going to actually support your salespeople to be able to better take advantage of the um, different sources and resources available to them than staying in that siloed sort of like, you know, where the sales folks leave us alone sort of thing. Um, and then lastly is you need to have a really great relationship with uh, your, your leader, like whoever your boss is, whoever runs the company. If you're running sales, you have to be really aligned with who that person is, what that person's mission is, what that person's values are, the goals, right? The approach, the philosophy, the strategy. And, you know, if you're, if you're not aligned with that CEO, it's, it's always difficult. It's tough to run a sales team when you just don't agree with the way the company's doing things. Maybe the way their product is being made or whether they're responding to the marketplace. And I think like if you're in a sales role, you need to be thinking about like, how do I manage up? How do I speak to the people above me? What's the relationship that I have with the people? Do they respect me? Do they come to me and want my opinion and my assessment? Do I collaborate with them? And do I impact leadership? Does leadership come to me and seem to like want my opinion on things? These are all signs that you'd probably be really, really good at management because these are the ways you have to kind of run things. So, so uh, can I yeah. interrupt, Warren? Because yeah. that, that was good. I want to sit on that for a second. I don't want you, because you're cooking with gas. I don't want us to run away from what you just said. I want to I want to sit on this. Sure. Thing. Sure, we, got, sure. we got thousands of people that just heard what you said. Some mm-hmm. of them are going to be enthused because they're saying, oh, I have that. That that happens. They're they're having those conversations with me. I, I feel that way. But, you know, all the things you said, they're like, check, check, check. What about people that say, huh, I'm not getting lumped into those conversations. I don't have people asking my advice on these things. I don't feel like I have a seat at that table or or the ear of that person. What would your advice be to someone who's, who really has that desire to become in that role, but they don't have those things happening for them? Any, any advices on how you might yeah. develop some of those things? Most definitely. I mean, the first thing you have to do, and most important, in my opinion, is ask a hard question of yourself. And that is why? Mm. Why, why do you think it is that that's not happening? Because it's really easy to go, well, they suck. You know? <laughs> yeah, we look or out the window. They're, not my yeah, fault, they're right? idiots. You know, they're yeah. idiots, or they don't care about me, or they don't know Boys shit. Boys club. Know? Yeah, it's it's really easy to do that. And frankly, there's probably a lot of evidence to support that stupid kind of way of thinking. But the reality is, you have to take responsibility for every single thing. You have to say, all right, how am I being in the job that's having me not have this relationship? Why am I not being invited to that table? Am I, you know, am I uh, difficult to work with? Are my numbers not good, right? Is my track record not where it should be? Um, 
Am I not consultative enough? I mean, there's so many things you can ask yourself when you map it against what you think people are looking for, right? And that's the first place to look. Because if you look outside yourself and start trying to fix things outside yourself, I think you're really not really addressing the problem. So the first thing I'd really do is make a, and you should probably get a coach or someone who third party who can give you that insight and say, look, let's do an analysis and figure out what's going on here. And then you have to work on those things. <clears throat> and so I think it's really, really important, right? That if you don't have that sort of relationship with those people, you first thing you have to do is ask yourself, why is it maturity? Maybe, maybe, maybe you're in the job not long enough and you have expectations that you should be invited to a table that you don't belong at yet. You know, and maybe you're just being a little egotistical and maybe being emotional. Right. Um, but if you've been at a job for a really long time and you feel that it should happen, given your tenure there, it's likely something that's going on, right? It's something that you're, you're doing, you're alienating people. So, so that's the first thing I would do. And I would say that's the most important one because all the other pieces of advice I give would come out of whatever you discover from that process, you know? And uh, a good salesperson that manages people has got to be really introspective, work on themselves, be honest with themselves, always self-evaluate themselves, always be improving and have a humble relationship with who they are or else they're just going to be finger pointing all the time. And, you know, people don't follow people like that. I mean, people follow people who are introspective and they take responsibility. So I would say that's probably the first place to look is why is it not happening? So Warren, I liked everything about that answer because what I wrote down was you got to take responsibility for every single thing. And uh, not only is that just a good practice, if you want to figure out how to advance your personal career, like you just talked about, but that kind of is the role of a CRO, isn't it? That they are responsible for a lot of things. Indeed. Indeed. And uh, thank you for that segue because, you know, a chief revenue officers, I would say real job. And this is something you should do, by the way, very interesting injections. I do this every day. You go to LinkedIn and go to the job boards and look at all the CRO jobs that are available and look at the job descriptions. And they're almost always sales focused. Right? Okay. We're looking for a sales leader to come in and build our sales organization and run our sales organization and build our pipeline growth. And, and you know, those are big red flags for me because those are companies whom, you know, don't really have a clear understanding of what a CRO does, which is oversees the entire revenue function, right? And they, all the customer facing parts of the company are, you know, the people who are touched by sales, people who are touched by marketing and people who deal with customer success. This is the most important part of your organization because these are the people who touch your customers the most. And a sales function needs to incorporate all three mainly because the customer is the most important part of the equation, right? When you look at a company like Amazon, and the reason why Amazon is the most valuable company in the world, at least it was a couple of days ago, um, is because all they care about is the customer, right? That's what Bezos' entire perspective was. It was all about customer excellence, customer obsession, and he's 100% right because he's smart enough to understand that if customers get a better experience every single time they click the button, they're always going to use Amazon. And, and that's a simple way to run your business. And I believe the same thing about any company. And so the customer success organization is the sort of the bellwether for the entire company because that's where customers come to die or come to live, right? And, you know, marketing and sales need to have a really great relationship with that organization. Now, if I'm a chief revenue officer, right, I'm running that organization, I want to have a head of sales, a head of marketing, and a head of customer success underneath me and have those three people work as a team, right, where the metrics that I develop and the way that I manage their outcomes is predicated on them working together, right, around the success of the customer. And, you know, that's much different than the way things are today. That's actually not the way most of these organizations are set up. They're actually set up around, you know, get me more pipeline, you know, get you more leads, you right. know. Yeah. And, and, you know, those are not really measures of anything. I mean, I can get a lead and I can send that lead to somebody who then counts to that lead as a, as a metric. And then 
that helps me make myself look good this month because that was the amount of leads out. But we only we only we only um, focus on what we measure, right? I think we're measuring the wrong things. So uh, a CRO is a very complex job, right? Um, you have to be a uh, a leader of different disciplines. You have to be a coordinator. You have to be a collaborator. You have to be a change agent. You have to be someone who knows how to bring people together and create like a, a unified mission. You have to understand how marketing works and how sales works and how customer success works and how to build revenue and also how to understand how the market's responding so that you can constantly iterate against the product and make different versions of products that people want to buy and make them more profitable. So another key aspect to a really great CRO is business acumen. Really good CROs understand business, you know, and they understand how businesses make money and they understand how money is made and how money is kept and how much things cost, right, et cetera, et cetera. So I think this is really, really critically important things to be able to think about when you're kind of running a sales organization from a CRO perspective, you know? I like it. Um, I'm trying to, I'm looking at this and I see how we're running, we're starting to run low. We got like a couple of minutes left. Um, we got a lot of people that are going to be better off. You gave some great insights on skills they should develop, how to find a good company, uh, ways that they might put the lens on to look through what's my role, how to know if you're a good fit. Um, maybe this is a good way to finish. When does a company know if they should have a CRO? Because CRO probably is not necessarily for all companies. Do you need to be at a specific level or am I wrong? Any company would benefit from a CRO. I love as the CRO guy, any thoughts on when a company benefits to have a CRO or, or where they fit the best? Yeah, I get this question every time I talk to somebody. It's, just, okay. it's a really good question. And, you know, there's no science. It's not like there's like some formula, you know, you enter an algorithm and it tells you, here's the day that you should hire your CRO. It doesn't exist. <laughs> but here are the things you need to look out for. There are definitely some, some ways to evaluate it. And I would say you're right. Um, if I'm a startup and I have like five people in the company, and I see this a lot, by the way, I don't understand this. It's not the right time to hire a chief revenue officer because you and I both know, Rob, what is the CRO going to do? in the first like five people. Sell. That's Sell. it. They're going to be yeah. salespeople, right? Yeah. So, so the, the role title is, 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 frankly, it's probably at that point, it's something more than like a, a vanity title, yep. you know, they're trying to get somebody to come join their startup and they go make it a CRO and they feel like they can say on LinkedIn, they're a CRO. And the reality is they're not really utilizing the role the way that it should be. So I don't think it's the right idea, at least really practically hiring a CRO. So when should you, right? So the answer is this. So when you have a, appropriate level of revenue complexity. And what do I mean when I say that, right? So that means that you have a marketing function, which is run by someone who has a budget, right? And has measurements against their performance. And you have a sales function, which is a, someone who's running a sales organization. It could be like, you know, one person running a team of like three or four people. And you have a customer onboarding section or, or account session. What, when you have those three distinct organizations and you're probably between somewhere, I'm, uh, this is not science, so don't quote me on this, but it's somewhere between I'd say around 10 to 25 million in revenues, annualized revenues. That's usually when a company starts to feel the symptoms of the silos in their revenue function that like indicate that. that a CRO needs to come in now and start to maybe recalibrate the way it's set up to bring more coordination in the way that I was describing it earlier. And I would say that I have a way, I have a, an assessment that I use for my clients that helps them figure this out. So it helps them kind of determine, you know, whether or not they have those relative symptomatic issues and what the outcomes are, negative outcomes are, and has them understand, okay, 
It's a good time for us to be thinking about this and creating what I'm calling CRO ready organizations. I help company build CRO ready organizations, which is a company that has set themselves up functionally, organizationally, uh, systematically, operationally, so they're ready to have a chief revenue officer be successful in it, right? And this is important. And if you don't do that work, you can't just have someone parachute in and fix this. The company needs to be ready for it. So the CEO really needs to think about this stuff a little bit more diligently than they do than just bringing on some guy that's going to fix it. That's, that's not really a good idea. That person is going to be cannon fodder, will last 18 months, and you'll make all your mistakes on that person. You'll waste half a million dollars or more, and then you'll have to hire somebody else. So it's really important that you really plan for this and you understand like um, how to set this up properly. Yeah, you know, as I listen to you, Warren, it makes a lot of things make sense. And I, I was rewinding what we talked about: role of a salesperson is to sell, role of a sales leader is to develop people. You know, is that that development of people thing we talked about? Role of a CRO is none of those things. Role of a CRO, as I listen to you, is coordination and silo removal. Is what it sounds like. Yes, it is. It's alignment. It's building alignment yeah. and cohesion and understanding how all these various functions work together to build revenue and to create um, create pipeline growth and to create recurring revenue and profitability. And also, most importantly, I would say, if I would say most importantly, outstanding customer outcomes. That's what you want. You want your customers to be happy because you, Rob, you and I know 65 or 70 percent of the sales you get comes from existing customers. And there's a reason for that. So you want them to be happy, right? So so I think that um, trying to solve problems by building deeper pipelines, that's a way to get through the quarter, but it's not a way to grow your business. That's a really great soundbite for us to start to wrap this up on, Warren. I, I really like this topic. Um, I think that this misunderstanding of what a CRO is is probably why you see such a high failure rate is what I would guess. Yes, um, 18, 18 months or so is, is the uh, average timeline of a CRO today. Which is crazy because I'm going to guess that for many people, it's because they had them doing the wrong things. It wasn't this 100%. Thing. They weren't hired definition. properly. Is yeah. there a temptation in giving people that title before a company's ready for it? All the time. So let me give you this scenario, right? So I'm sure there's a couple of sales leaders that are on, on listening to this right now who already manage a bunch of people. Let's say that person's really good at it, right? They're really, really good. They're effective sales leader. They're running things really well. And then all of a sudden, one day, that same person gets a job opportunity from a competitor or from another company, offers that person a whole bunch of money. It's not uncommon. I see this happen all the time. His boss says, I'll tell you what, I'm going to give you a raise. I'm going to make you a CRO. Because the title comes with a lot of you know, there's, there's a lot of, I don't know what's the word, you know, it, it's a very, um, you know, there's a lot of vanity to it, you know? Yep. And so the title is doled out, in my opinion, very liberally. It's not thought about. What that CEO should say is, I don't want you to leave. I'd like you to stay. What is it you need to stay? Are you interested in being the chief revenue officer? If the answer is yes, Let's discuss what that really means to find out if it's the right step for both of us. And if it is, we'll change your profile and I'll help make that happen as opposed to just give the person the title. And then six months later, they're a CRO and they're still doing the same thing. So I think that there's a lot of that. There's a lot of that. I see a lot of CROs who I can tell just they just got the title because they they asked for it. I would guess, Warren, that that's a higher number than most think. I would guess Uh, that... 
more often than not, it's a mistake, which is why your company is having so much success. So yeah, it is. It's a big. It's a big problem. It's a big problem. CMOs have this problem too. By the way, it's easy to make someone the head of marketing the CMO. It just it happens all the time. Um, and what it what it's done is it's diluted the value of the role, right? If I give anybody that title, it doesn't mean anything anymore, you know. So right. so I think that, that we you really sort of have some like I'd say title protection, if just it were, you know. But uh, you know, we'll 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 figure that out down the road, I think. Well, we've burned up our time, man. I enjoyed. I mean, I knew it would happen. I just enjoyed the conversation even more than I thought. You're you're awesome, Warren. Congrats oh, on thank your success. You. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Our, we're gonna have listeners. How do our listeners connect with you? How do they learn more about you? How do they how do they get more of what you have to offer or, or have conversations with you? How, how do they do that? Sure. So you see behind me, you got the CRO Collective. You can go to CROcollective.com. My website has a lot of different stuff there. Other, other podcasts that I've done, I have some white papers and some other things. There are a couple of diagnostics. And you can reach me at Warren at the CROcollective.com or LinkedIn. I'm a pretty big loudmouth there. You can always DM me. And, uh, you know, I, I love talking to people. I have really great. If anyone's interested in developing their skills and learning what it's like to become a CRO, or if you are a CRO and you're experiencing some of the stuff I'm talking about, you're looking for like a roadmap to get out of it, or if you're a CEO and you're looking to hire one and you want to understand better how to build a CRO-ready organization, reach out to me. I'd love to help you. Okay. He's Warren Zena. He's helping people avoid the temptation of title. Uh, he's helping create outstanding customer outcomes all around the world. And-, and he can help you know if you need to be a CRO, if you should company should have a CRO and the skills you need to have. So should you choose that route, you can be world-class. Warren, I appreciate you, man. I appreciate what you're doing for the community. I'm so grateful to have you on our show. And as I say to everybody, happy selling, my friend. Thank you so much, Rob. This is great. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another So What portion of the Sales Leadership Podcast, where we break down that interview and we ask ourselves, why did that conversation even matter? But first, I got to thank my friends at Scipio for their ongoing support of the Sales Leadership Podcast. Texting is one of the last platforms where you can really differentiate how you engage your customers. There's no doubt in my mind that texting needs to be part of the modern sales process. I've really dug into Scipio's product, and I love it. Since I've started this partnership with Scipio, I've had several sales managers hit me up and tell me just how awesome the experience they've had with the Scipio platform has been. It's simplicity, it's powerful features, and the impact of texting done right, it makes this tool a no-brainer for the modern salesperson. Listen, not all text messaging platforms are created equal. And if you're looking to engage more with your clients and you're also looking to get more prospects to your demos and discovery meetings, Start using Scipio. Scipio's platform is the most powerful and most personal one I've ever seen, and it's just that simple. I know the team personally. I know they'll give you an amazing experience. Take advantage of a free month with no strings attached, compliments of the Sales Leadership Podcast. Head to Scipio.com, that's S-K-I-P-I-O.com, and tell them I sent you by using the code ROB on the sign-up page. You're going to be blown away how quickly the right texting platform can change the game for the members of your team. Now, this podcast is also brought to you by the Jepson Performance Group, my company. If you're like most sales leaders and you've been left to figure out your sales leadership system on your own, I'd love to talk to you. I'm hearing from more and more of you every week, and I love to have the conversation around the fact that while there's no shortcuts to success, you absolutely can get there faster if you take the most direct route. 
And if you like the content of this podcast, you're going to love the content that I have in my community for sales leaders, Sales Leadership United. I want you to think of it as the Home Depot for sales leaders. It's got my very best content, over 100 hours of new training materials, new content delivered every single week. You're going to find everything you need in Sales Leadership United. And finally, if you've never had a coach in your corner, now is a really great time to give it a try. The greatest performers in the world in every discipline invest in themselves. And all the leaders I'm coaching, they're having the best year of their careers this year as we find those small improvements that create huge impact. So save your most precious resource, your time, because small improvements create disproportionate results in both sales and sales leadership. And if you want to win just a little more, just a little faster, well, you'll create massive results. And if you want to find those small advantages, hit me up today. Now, listen, I have a lot of sales leaders that ask me about how to move from a frontline manager to an area manager to a vice president to ultimately someone that runs all of revenue. I've also had a couple of friends that have worked with Warren, and and they really had a great experience with him. So it was a no-brainer for me to get him in today. We're at that time of year where a lot of us are thinking about our careers. There are some of you that may be thinking you want to advance your career. My number one piece of advice is to always learn who the boss's boss is when you're looking to, to advance. And we can talk about that if you ever want to hit me up. But I really liked the insights that Warren had. There were such great nuggets in here. Warren has all kinds of depth in things like when to hire a CRO, what makes for a great CRO, the red flags to look for if you're looking for a CRO. I loved his insights around too many people getting a a lofty elevated title before either the company's ready for it or maybe maybe you are. Um, there's, There's a lot of reasons to be careful about that. But I'm going to gravitate to two specific parts of this conversation. The first are the things that Warren shared about what makes for a great sales leader. Every part of his advice started with being wired to help. I loved it. I've gone back and I've listened to it a couple times. Um, I've actually shared it in a couple of places. Um, I love his perspective on this. Are you wired to help people? Are you someone that gets satisfaction in helping people improve? Are you helping share best practices? Are you aware of what people are doing well and not so well? Are you noticing those things? Great leaders are professional noticers, I've decided. And so you notice Warren's advice wasn't about being the best salesperson or the brightest. It was about being the most alert for ways to help people. I loved that. And if you're not getting people coming your way to ask for help, if you don't have people that see you as a resource and their success, I loved Warren's advice on sitting back and asking yourself why that is the case. Super good advice. Put that mirror up in front of your face and ask yourself, why are people not coming to me for help? Um, I, 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 I thought that was a really great piece of insight because the great leaders that I work with, they accept that role of improvement and growth. It's not a role of hitting a number. It's a role of helping people improve and grow. This is a big deal, and those that get this do really, really well. I, I I really like that Warren made a distinction that there are those that love to coach and are good at it, and there are those that do it as a function or a skill, and that some actually do it begrudgingly. And he's right. I've seen that before. Now, that doesn't mean you can't get good at it. It just means you're going to have to work harder at it. And I, I just barely recorded an episode uh, in a podcast that will be released in a few weeks with Larry Levine on his show. He asked me what skill any leader looking to do self-improvement should do to have a killer 2020. 
And um, my response was to get great at people development and at coaching because that needs to be your role. And it is for sure a skill you can learn, but it is way easier if you can get good at connecting with people first. Connect before you correct. So be introspective on this. How good are you at helping people improve? This is way different than managing or using data to find skill gaps. By the way, if you ever find yourself using that term skill gaps, take it out of your vocabulary. I used it on purpose because I hear it from so many people. It's a horrible term. Um, it puts you in a different level than your reps. It, it, it's one that will blow up in your face all the time to talk about skill gaps. No, don't do that. Uh, get rid of that term. But that focus that I just talked about, that will bring so many other things into the right place. If you can focus on improvement, if you can focus on growth, whether it's your top player, top person on your team or the newest person on your team, everyone should be chasing something more, something better, no matter who you are. Um, the second thing that I want to bring up from the, from this conversation with Warren, such an awesome one, that great leaders are willing to accept responsibility for everything. Listen, you don't look out the window when things go wrong. You don't point fingers. Instead, you look in the mirror. I talked about looking in the mirror earlier in this. I'm going to say it again now. If you're looking to raise your leadership game, look in the mirror. Own everything you can. Because that's what the best ones do. We don't build silos and we don't point fingers and we don't make excuses. We build people and those people build companies. So that's it. Warren, thank you for joining me. You're amazing. Warren gave us such great insights around sales leadership. My advice to you is to reach out to Warren. Connect with him. Check out his work. He will help you advance your sales leadership career without a doubt. And Warren, I can't thank you enough for joining me. Also, thanks to my friends at Scipio. If you have not done so already, please head over to Scipio.com. Take advantage of their free 30-day trial by using the tool for yourself. Go to the sign-up link, enter the code ROB, that's R-O-B, and start communicating with your prospects the way they want to be communicated with. You'll get results faster than you may have ever thought possible. Finally, thanks to each of you, our listeners. If you like this episode, please give us a five-star review on iTunes. It goes a long way in helping me get the best guests in the world on our show. But the best compliment you can give me is to share this episode with your friends and colleagues. Share the show with someone who needs to hear it, and then be elite, live strong, chase your passions, and don't worry, just execute, because we got you. Thank you so much for joining the Sales Leadership Podcast, the award-winning sales leadership podcast for those sales leaders looking to create legendary impact to those they lead. The greatest compliment you can give is to share this show and any of your favorite episodes with your fellow sales leaders, social media followers, or other communities you're part of. The Sales Leadership Podcast is brought to you by the Jepson Performance Group. If you want to discuss any of the topics discussed on the show, want to level up your leadership impact, discuss executive coaching services, or even include me at an upcoming event, hit me up at rob at jetpg.com. That's rob at jeppg.com. And to those of you working to become a legendary sales leader, I salute you and wish you much success on your journey. Whenever you need someone in your corner, you know where to find me.